Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Aliza Yvette Esquivel. She's a C-level consultant and global strategist who helps companies create and grow brands. She's currently Chief Strategy Officer for Barbarian, and it's a pleasure for me to have you join me on The Deep Dive. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you. You know, you've had an amazing career, to say the least. I, I kept the intro short only because if I read every company that you've worked with, every campaign that you've won an award for, the entire show would be taken up with just talking about those things. And what I want to do is is really tap into what is an extraordinary wealth of knowledge around the way we think about and do strategy. So I want to give you an opportunity to speak to, you know, a little bit of your your current role with Barbarian. Prior to this, you were at Future Brand. And, you know, really give us an idea of what got you into these particular seats. And then I want to spend a lot of time about the art, the craft of strategy itself. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's very uh, humbling and it's an honor to be here and speak with you. Um, Yeah, with regard to my current role at Barbarian as Chief Strategy Officer, really, this is a a role that I've given myself permission to have after a long career, where I had decided that I wanted creativity to be at the center of what I did. And also, uh, I wanted to pursue my passions and interests, one of them being technology, another of them being uh, the future and future forecasting. And, you know, Barbarian is is not a traditional advertising agency. We think about ourselves more as a creative technology company. And we sit at the intersection of creativity and technology. And it's a wonderful time, actually, to be in a role like this because of the radical changes that are taking place in Web 3.0, you know, NFTs, the metaverse, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But really, you know, my role at Barbarian is to bring a traditional strategic discipline and strategic thinking and strategic approach into the enterprise of creating the future faster at the intersection of creativity and technology. So that's what I'm up to. It's a wonderful ride. It's a small agency. It has a very independent spirit. We think about ourselves as rebels and hackers. And so we, you know, we let ourselves be incredibly inventive and innovative and push boundaries whilst at the same time, you know, doing well by our clients and making sure that the rigor is there, that the things that we're creating for them are fit for purpose for their brand and also driving growth. Now, you know, when you, when you started to give that answer, you mentioned that this was a role that you gave yourself permission to take. And, you know, immediately that opens up a wealth of other types of inquiries. So, you know, that's a that's a very specific way of framing that. So I want to give you an opportunity or, you know, I'm really curious about like when you say give yourself permission, like what does that really mean in relation to your professional or personal way in which you, you think about these things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think that uh, when you start a career in a strategy or planning, you can very easily get into First of all, it's an amazing ride. It's a career that allows you to explore your curiosity uh, and to be creative. But if you get career oriented about it, you can get quite uh, transactional and achievement oriented in your approach. And in some ways, you know, that I would say like, you know, the first 60% of my career was very much about just me being curious and what would it be like if I did it this way or with this kind of a company or in this kind of an industry or this kind of an agency. But I think that when I went client side, I kind of got pulled into a little bit of a different mindset. 
where it's sort of like at this stage in your career, one does this. And in order to move to the next level, one does this, this and that. And those things weren't necessarily things that I would have naturally gravitated toward, but they were things that I felt I needed to do in order to progress professionally. And at a certain point, I just found myself progressed, but not necessarily in a state of joy. So when I, you know, when I talk about, you know, this being a role that I give myself permission to have is really to say that, you know, this adjoining barbarian wasn't sort of like this big calculated career move on my part. Instead, it was sort of driven more by, as I said, my passion, my heart, my interests, and, you know, wanting creativity to be at the center of my life experience. Now, joy is is a term that comes up quite a lot on the show. It's one of the principles of of what I call love language, which is is what I use in in my practice to work with organizations and 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 help them think about the future. And so once the word comes up, again, I have to in, in, interrogate that a little bit more. And you know, how do you joy and, and these types of terms are are not one that we often hear in corporate settings, right? I, I think oftentimes it is a little bit more more calculating. So, you know, in this current seed and in, in, in comparison maybe to others, like why do you feel like now is the time that joy needed to be centered in your journey? And how do you think that will translate or does it translate to the the work that's being done? Yeah. I mean, the the why is, you know, it's <laughs> I mean, you can tell somebody, oh, you should have joy in what you do. But at least for me, I, I didn't value having joy in what I did until I didn't have joy in what I did. So but it was, you know, it was sort of like a discovery by contrast is the best, you know, answer I can give about why now was that I, you know, I really got to a place where I wasn't feeling invigorated and I took a break. I took a two-year sabbatical. I call it a radical sabbatical. And that's something we can talk about also if you'd like. But it was during that time where I just took my hands off the steering wheel of being a, a career-oriented person and just was just a person person and kind of got reacquainted with what it what it meant to sort of just be human and be myself. And then I liked it so much that I just didn't want to let it go. And so I was like, I just need to bring this with me wherever I go next. And that's that's what I mean by sort of like having that joy you know, at the center. And then in terms of how it makes a difference, I really honestly, I feel like it makes all the difference. Uh, and, you know, as a manager of 17 people, because I value having that experience for myself, I want to create an environment for my team where every single individual on my team can have that experience for themselves as well. You know, one of the things that I do whenever I have a new hire or I'm or when I was meeting new members of my team is we have two separate sessions, one where I just sort of get to know them from a career perspective. And then a second where we do a life coaching session, they take the VIA character survey, which catalogs their character strengths. They talk to me about their peak experiences and I catalog all of that for the team and also for each individual. And then as I'm looking at their uh, stretch assignments, you know, how I'm developing their career, who I'm placing them under in terms of reporting structure. I'm always trying to sort of answer to what they find fulfillment in and also to what their strengths are. Now, I'm glad you you brought up your sabbatical because I believe we met during your sabbatical. So I forget, it's kind of a little bit lost in antiquity, but I think we connected over LinkedIn and I don't know if I did a talk or did something, but somehow we found each other. And um, it was in the, you were in the midst of this, of this sabbatical. So I want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more about that, because I think moments where we have the opportunity to reflect, to rest in, in whatever way we can, can be very transformational and you're alluding to that seems like it was one of those transformational moments in your life. Yeah, absolutely. It was. And, you know, I'll talk about it, but I'll also say that in hindsight and on reflection, this wasn't the first time in my life that I did something like that because in my twenties, I lived in Austin, Texas, and I was a slacker and I took six years to get my BA and my parents were really horrified but you know you know at that time you know, we were identified as slackers and people thought we were languishing and we weren't you know sort of doing what we were supposed to be doing but 
in all honesty, we were doing exactly what we were supposed to be doing, which was, you know, taking the time to find out who we were, to experiment, to explore, to discover our own interests, and to to set that foundation for ourselves before we launched into being kind of actors in the world. So I do think that it's not very well understood that at particular life stages, we are going to need to take breaks. Uh, We're going to be living longer, you know, especially with advances in science. I mean, I personally plan to live to be 108. So when you have this self-perception of, hey, I'm on a learning journey and I'm going to live for a long time, deciding to take two years off in the bigger picture doesn't isn't that that big of a deal. But I do think that society doesn't necessarily give us permission to take a vacation, much less, you know, two years off. So to talk about the radical sabbatical, I mean, for me, I think what happened was, as I alluded to earlier, that I was I was on paper successful, but inwardly I wasn't, you know, I didn't wake up happy. And and I thought to myself, you know, I've been careering very vigorously and I've seen results. So now I think I've earned the right to sort of take my hands off the steering wheel for a little bit because when I was driving the car, it led me to a place where I started waking up in the morning and not being happy. So let me see what happens (laughs) when I take my foot off the gas and I stop, you know, driving the car and just kind of just really, and I've had somebody say to me that it's an act of bravery to do that. And, you know, it did feel a little scary, you know, because it's sort of like, I don't know, I'm just going to wake up and see what happens and do whatever interests me. And, do nothing and and let that just kind of go on until the next step reveals itself to me as is the best way that I could describe that. And I did all kinds of really wonderful things. You know, the first thing that I did was attend a, a lecture series at the Tibetan uh, Museum of Art on prophecy, divination, and astrology, which is something that really interests me. I I took some trips to LA to explore what's going on in the ecosystem there and the relationship between sort of like social influencer creators and the Hollywood set and uh, 3D renderers and all those sort of creative types that were sort of in LA. So I I had a friend who lived there and I kind of just go and hang out in LA for a little while and just, you know, feel, you know, feel the vibe. I, I myself plotted out a, a script for a film. I took improv acting classes what else did I do? I got together with the Harvard Divinity School in their vision lab, and I did a lucid dreaming experiment. So, you know, aside from, you know, a meditation practice and a yoga practice and sort of doing nothing and just reading what I was interested in reading, I did every once in a while sort of like get inspired to do a project or explore something. And then, you know, I would sort of do that. And that's really, you know, what my sabbatical was about. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I want to go to sabbatical and then travel around the world and this and that. And for me, that wasn't the case because I'd always had a global career. And for the past 17 years before my sabbatical, I'd been on a plane a lot and I'd been traveling all over the world. And I had sort of seen many of the places that I wanted to see. So for me, my sabbatical was more what we would call an inner journey. I mean, that's a that's an incredible inner journey. And I, I remember portions of that because I remember the lucid dreaming conversation and uh, different elements of it, which is why I, w- I was hoping that it would, would come up in this conversation. And it's interesting that in in so much of that there is a willingness to go very wide in your exploration and it seems like there's a a keenness to at least be open to those moments when you can also move slowly and that seems in quite a contrast to generally how our world works and to make a a finer point on it when you think about where we started this conversation talking about those intersections of creativity and technology, which are often viewed as fast moving arenas. So in your mind, like how do you square those realities of the wealth of lessons that you've learned from moving slowly and yet living and existing in a, in a world that is moving at an opposite rate? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I'm smiling because I'm being reminded of a story that a friend of mine told me. Uh, who, she, I have a friend who has a cat. I've actually lots of friends who have cats. I myself do not have a cat, but I love cat lovers. So all you cat lovers out there, you know, hello. I'm more of a dog person, but hey, you know what I mean? I'm like, it's, it's, it's all good. 
in any case, I have this friend who has a cat. And one day we were just chit-chatting on the phone and she said to me, she said, you know, she said, I, I want to be like my cat. You know, my cat just like lays around all day, you know, stretches in the sun. It's just really chill. And then all of a sudden we'll just spring into action and go... <laughs> And go like run outside and like go, you know, whatever, you know, grab something or, and I, I do think that the relationship between creativity and technology and sort of slow and fast can be a little bit like that. And I think, oh, wow, you know, could we all just be a little bit more like cats, where we give ourselves permission to just enjoy life and to, you know, I don't know what cats think about, but you know what I mean? Just sort of like be in our own, in our own being space. And then when it needs to happen, or when we're inspired, that idea of inspired action, we spring into action. So I do think if we if we lived our lives a little bit more that way, it'd be interesting to see what society would look like. Yeah, cats do have that that energy. They're they're quite frenetic. I think that's one of the things that when you're not necessarily a cat person, that kind of throws you off. You know, I'm probably like yourself, more of a, a dog person. I like the laying around of dogs and they're also super like affectionate. <laughs> so cats always seem to be on their own shit. And I'm like, you live here, right? Like, <laughs> how dare you ignore me? <laughs> <laughs> they they see you as their servant, my dear. That's <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. They're like, you live with me. <laughs> yeah. The op- You're here to the feed opposite. me. That's what you do. <laughs> Exactly. An an empty Uh, litter box, right? uh, (laughs) Um, So, you know, I want to get us into the strategy piece, right? And you've existed in, at the very least, three very key parts of, of this business, right? You've already alluded to being on the client side, you've been on the agency side, you've also been a consultant. When you look at those different experiences, how have they kind of shaped you into this particular moment? Because each of them are are very different with their own demands, with their own expectations. So kind of give me and us a sense of how that's kind of coalesced into a whole. Yeah. Well, in short, if I were going to give each of those perspectives headlines, right, is you know, when you're in a creative agency, you're the most fun part of your client's job. And in a lot of ways, your role is to bring in the outside perspective and to bring in the inspiration that your client isn't necessarily able to get within the the walls of whatever their organization is. So that's a really good way, I think, to think about, you know, the role that you play. Once you get client side, you know, for me, at least as a creative person, I felt that my role was to create a process and conditions within an organization that would either allow for creativity to happen within that organization or for creativity to be metabolized by the organization when it was coming in from an outside agency. And then, you know, as a consultant, it depends on what kind of consulting you do. You know, at, at Feature Brand, it was very C-suite level consulting, helping to create new products, new platforms, or transform whole brands. Really, at that point, you're almost like a consigliere to your client counterpart in helping them to not only take in the external inspiration, but to lay out a sort of a roadmap or a stakeholder mapping so that external inspiration can land and actually be instituted and sort of adopted by the organization. And I'm curious about your thoughts on really how much true strategy we see out there. And the reason why I ask that is, you know, I'm a strategist, right? So I've worked with a a lot of different folks. And I find for all of the conversation we have about strategy, the use of the word strategy, mm-hmm. there's actually very little strategy being being practiced. Yeah. And of course, we can all define that in, in different ways. But I'm curious about your thoughts on that, because I, I find strategy to be actually very elusive. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I sound like an old lady, like in the good old days. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's true when I, you know, when I came to New York advertising, that was in 2000. I mean, I wrote my master's thesis in account planning. I mean, I was properly trained as an account planner, which is a very specific application of strategy that is very interdisciplinary. And at that time, at least the planning discipline within advertising agencies was greatly valued. And you would spend, you know, between six to eight months in the strategic development phase for a new brand positioning for a big global brand. And it was, to my mind, done properly in a lot of ways. You know, when I think about some of the earliest projects that I worked on, let's say in the first four years of four to six years of my career, that was strategy done properly, where it was valued, it was understood how important it was. It was understood that you need multiple ways of seeing and multiple rigorous pieces of research to be conducted, you know, quantitative research an anthropology study, some ethnography, you know, shop-alongs, you know, there were multiple things. And then you would have brainstorming sessions where you'd bring the think tanks in to like play around ideas. You know what I mean? It was really, really rigorous in those days. And I think uh, for a number of reasons, that's gone away. And so it's sad. I'd love to, you know, form a council to figure out how we can fix it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so I agree. I, I agree that proper strategy is elusive. And what I find in today's, you know, it's been a while since I've been in the agency environment, we're like putting out creative product and coming back into it. We're lucky if we get two weeks for strategy development and it's desk research. And there's always this call like, oh, you know, your strategists need to go out and talk to consumers. And, and I'm like, yeah, they should, but Clients need to understand the value of it, be willing to sort of pay for that time. Agencies need to be remunerated in a way where those resources are available. So I do think that there's just, there's a lot of scrappy stuff going out there, going on out there in the industry that is not ideal. You know, it's it's not resulting in rich insight. And we see it. I mean, like, when was the last time you, you saw a commercial that you wanted to see or even a, a piece of digital creative content, like as an actual consumer, you know, that you were like, that's so true, or, or even like, ha ha ha, like, we're not even there anymore, because we sort of lost the art. And, you know, you said, in your response, like, you know, this stuff isn't valued, right? And which leads me to the inevitable question of why, right? Like, you know, in your estimation, why have we seen a shift away from the sort of rigor that you just described. And, you know, we obviously were talking in a advertising marketing media perspective. I think it it's beyond just those disciplines in terms of the lack of rigor that we see when it comes to strategy. Obviously, all organizations, theoretically anyway, yeah. would, would need some sort of strategy. So I, I want to drill down into your, you know, your thoughts on the why. Yeah, I mean, I... I have a short answer and it's it's not just affecting advertising, it's affecting all content. So, you know, how many times have you said, oh my God, I have so many channels and nothing good to watch? Or like you go into Netflix now and you're sort of like, you're really sort of picking, you know, through the, <laughs> the pile. And I think it's because we have too many pipes and too much content being pushed to the pipes. And there's been a lot of measurement but there's a lot of measurement of things that actually don't matter. But because they can measure it, it becomes sort of like proof of some kind of a performance, even though the link of that performance to actual sales isn't always there. And then when it is there, it's very transactional communication. So I do think we're sitting in a larger ecosystem of the tech platforms and the cord cutting and all of the sort of the digital entertainment platforms. And there's just like flooding of ways to view things. And then therefore you have to create tons and tons of content to be viewed. And as a consequence, with all of that busyness, Right. And, you know, you've got all these short timelines and more content and more content and more. And and it's just like creating a bunch of stuff in the system. Very hard to break through in that environment. And then if you are going to break through in that environment, 
without proper strategy, you know what I mean? Really, it's like maybe you just get lucky because you just had a eureka moment and there was a great creative idea and you were able to sort of do it. And it's interesting because there's a there's a lot of things in there, right? Which is good, you know? So I'm listening and I'm thinking through the thought process because I think, yeah, there is a lot of stuff out there and stuff I'm defining as like what we call like content, right? <laughs> like there's movies, there's music, there's TV shows, there's books, there's podcasts. We're on a podcast right now. You know, this is all yeah. this stuff. And on one hand, I'm like, is that giving us more of an opportunity to, you know, find and discover things and bring other people to the table, right? Like, mm -hmm, you know, I'm a kid mm -hmm. of the 70s and, you know, there was three networks when I, for most of my youth, right? There was ABC, mm -hmm. NBC, CBS, and it's only in like the late 80s to early 90s that we even got Fox, right? Like, um, so dating myself, but I'm saying that to say that, you know, you watched what was on Tuesday night, ABC, eight o'clock was Happy Days, right? You watched it and then that was it, right? You didn't have no choice. There was no alternative to watch it when you wanted and, and all the rest of it. And now obviously we have many choices. And with good and bad to that. So I'm trying to get at, is there now a democratization, for lack of a better word, in the ways in which audiences can find things and discover things? Yeah, I mean, I think democratization of creativity and the ability to be a creator is the universal positive of all of this. You know, particularly um, when you see what goes on on TikTok, where, you know, there's a platform that it's, you know, it's easy to learn, you know, it's, it's lower entry bar, but you can be expressive and you can sort of, you know, create and share in many, many ways. So I do think that there's a, a sort of a truth to that. I still feel like the curation bit and the being able to be discovered Right. So there's flip sides of that coin. Right. So there's more of an opportunity to discover niche interests because there, you know, there's more room for people to become publishers and broadcasters and creators. And so there's more we're seeing more of like people's inner lives and interests. And, you know, we're getting to see more of what's really there. But I do think that there's more of a need for curation of that and then also for more equity in which of those creators and which of those voices we're lifting up to be seen uh, more widely. And, you know, I think that offers us an opportunity to, to think more about some of these differentiators, right? In the sense that I think oftentimes with one of the challenges of, of strategy and with culture, you know, another space that I spend a lot of time in is that there are multiple ways in which we think about those terms, you know, just saying a word like strategy will denote one meaning to one person and denote something else to another and the same thing with culture. And so we end up confusing terms in a way, right? That oftentimes organizations will mistake their goals for strategy. Mm -hmm. And and those aren't the same thing at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do we better understand or codify in a way, if possible, what strategy really is so we can recognize when it's good and when it's bad <laughs> in, in, a, in a manner of speaking. Yeah. I actually went back to a talk that I gave a few years ago at the Forest Strategy Festival about the future of planning. And I talked about the difference between strategy and planning. And I'd love to sort of share with you what I said then and open it up for more discussion. So strategy actually is a military term in, in its origin. And, and it's very interesting, you know, because I did my graduate studies in communication. So when you do that, you do learn a lot about the origin of communication, communication theory, heuristics. And a lot of this did come out of the military and then seep into communication theory. If anybody out there who's listening wants to go back into the history of that. But in this definition that is from the professor of war studies at King's College London, strategy is defined as being about power and the use of resources, which is, I think, a very interesting 
way of thinking about strategy. It's sort of like you have some place that you want to go, right? But then where's the power in getting from A to B? And what resources are you going to use to sort of navigate that terrain? And, you know, it's interesting to think about sort of like power being in cultural perception, power being in category norms. You know what I mean? It's, it's interesting when you think about it that way. Now, the way that I would define planning, okay, which is a use of strategy for the purposes of communication. And I would say a use of strategy for the purposes of effective communication, great communication, creative communication. Then I would say that planning is an art that inspires art. So, you know, it is an expansive way of seeing and experiencing that when revealed inspires creation. And like all art, it requires imagination and tradecraft. So if you think about, okay, now if if we're going to play with that definition, okay, of strategy as it pertains to its application in the communication industry, then you'll know you see a good strategy when, number one, it tells you how to get get from A to B. (laughs) So, you know, so it's it's like in its highest term, it is actually strategy. But then secondarily, is it imaginative? Is it evocative? Does it inspire creation? And does it itself adhere to some sort of the tradecraft of what is strategy, which is, you know, that research, that insight, you know, that nuance, some of the sort of the things that we know as strategists we need to sort of do. And I'm glad that you brought up the issues around power, because I think when I think about the term you know, I drill it down to power being about understanding your strengths, your advantages, being able to assess those. And then in that context, use the resources you have in a way that is going to, again, get you to that point A, from point A to point B. You're looking to get from one place to another. And I find that in my experiences, a lot of organizations struggle with understanding where their advantages truly mm-hmm. lie. Mm-hmm. And and there's lots of reasons for that. So I'm I'm curious about, you know, what I just offered there that understanding where your strengths are is part of doing this work and and understanding where you are organizationally and then coordinating resources within organizations which are often at dual purpose at least. So taking those two things into account Like, how do we get, again, from a good strategy distinct from a bad strategy, right? Like understanding where our strengths are and then allocating resources in a way to take advantage of that. Yeah. This is why creative people being on the client side, creative people being in agencies and then sort of advocates in the consulting world, like they're all needed. And the reason is, is because, you know, I have some friends of mine and I were joking that we're going to make t-shirts out of this which is sort of like org design is destiny. And that it's because these companies, their marketing departments really are trying to find the way for the brand. Or even the CEO is sort of like, you know, wanting to sort of state the mission and purpose of an organization. But if the way that it's structured in terms of the way that it makes money, its revenue model and the business units, the way that it's, that it's organized around business units, whatever the org structure is of a company, depending on how big it is. I'll give you an example of, let's say, Mondelez. I worked at Mondelez. Mondelez was a distribution-led, sales-driven organization. The way that that company, its moat is that it buys more companies so it has wider distribution, and then it utilizes its sales team to sell those, to drive velocity of that distribution. Marketing lives in the service of that. So marketing could discover a great insight or a great strategy or a great meaning of a particular brand. But in order to bring it to life, it has to navigate that solidified org structure that isn't really designed to serve that strategic insight. Org structure is the org structure, right? So I think that that that's why things get knotted up. That's why great strategies are, you know, are often not realized. You know, that's how companies sometimes get in their own way. And it's really reorgs. You know, like if you talk to anybody who's worked at Google, Facebook, any of these big companies, you name it, they're constantly reorging. Why? Why are they constantly reorging? Because they're adhering to an older model, military model, 
masculine model of power structures that are hierarchical, top down, right? Everything's in columns from the top, you know, and then you get these like columns. There's no opportunity for dispersed network movement, for ad hoc networks, for vertical movement. And then when business contexts change, they have to kind of reset the columns, you know what I mean? And that's like why they're always reorging. And so, you know, a big part of, of what needs to happen is corporate governance, corporate org structure in big companies really needs to be revisited because they can't exist in a VUCA society and have structures that are inflexible. I went and off on a tangent. <laughs> no, that that's, I think that's a, a critical point. And it, it actually speaks to a, a question that I, that I have here, which is, I think when you start to talk about organizational structure, again, it, it is charted out in a way that is designed to a certain extent to be a roadmap, right? And and we often talk and, and use those analogies. And I've talked about this and, and written about this, that maps are not the territory, right? So you're living in a world where the map is an approximation of space and Org charts are like this. I say to people all the time that culture is informal and formal, right? The org chart is a formal understanding of how this organization works. But within that organizational chart, there's all sorts of informal ways in which things get done, regardless yes. of the lines here and the dotted lines there mm -hmm. and the circle mm -hmm. or bubble or whatever color mm -hmm. coding or however mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. many different ways we've, we've seen those things. So I want to try to understand, while we have to understand our strengths, where power lies, and move from a point A to point B, there's a certain level of comfort that we have to get with uncertainty and the ambiguous nature of just the world around us. So mm -hmm. how do we start to model that within the organizations that, that we're in or that we're working with? Yeah. The only way that I've found so far, and as you stated earlier in the podcast, I've been at it for a good long while uh, it, with all different kinds of companies, is through marketing and innovation experiments. So if a small bit of money can be set aside for an experiment and the experiment can make use of informal networks within the organization and outside of the organization, because I think that that notion of informal networks is a very powerful notion. It's informal networks that actually create many of the cultural breakthroughs, many of the artistic breakthroughs that we see. You know, So it's like if you're, if you're playing within these structures, that's where stasis occurs, right? So when these informal networks kind of get created, that's where there's just a, seems to be a lot more energy, a lot more freedom, and you're sort of unlocked from that grid, right? So I do think that as strategists, to advocate for if a strategy feels like it's too much of an outlier, to sort of bring it back later and say, you know, we really believe in this. Is Can we do like a small experiment? And then I would say, do it in a way where there's real skin in the game in terms of impact and metrics. So do an in-market test, you know what I mean? Like run your experiment in two markets and be able to show actual lift of some significant kind, sales lift or, you know, real brand perception lift or something. And I think that evidence is powerful. And when something's working, an organization will want to lean in because you've demonstrated the power. So I do think that, you know, that would be my best advice on that one. And, and I've found that when I've done that, I may not have always been able to transform an entire organization but I have been able to recruit more members to the cause and invite more members to that informal network of, of people who are trying to create that change. And, you know, I want to I want to pick up on that a, a little bit more because it, it sounds like we're getting into maybe a realization or a an opportunity to discuss strategy through the lens of hypothesis. Right. That we are offering a possibility and that possibility needs time to be, you know, interrogated, you know, what you just described as modeling and, and testing. I want to, you know, compare that a little bit to where we started at the beginning talking about time, right? There seems to be less 
time as described as rigor to do any of this. So again, it, it seems like we're at opposing ends of the reality of the time constraint with what is needed, experimentation, hypothesis, all those things require time, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we introduce and push the hypothesis element into this to maybe get back more of, of that time that this just needed to flesh these things out? Yeah, that's a big question. Let's talk about time for a little bit in a moment. So promise me we'll come back to time. I, I do want to say that one of the ways that we do it at Barbarian is that we do innovation sprints. So we understand the time. Our whole philosophy is create the future faster. And, you know, we can talk about the kind of future we're creating, but I'm going to just talk about the faster bit here, which is we understand the pressures and constraints that our clients can be under. We also understand the organizational structure that they might be in the mindset, you know, and if they're marketers that are trying to sort of innovate, they need to be able to show proof of concept quickly in order to make a case for reallocation of budgets or for doing things in a certain way. And I would say one of the benefits of Barbarian is, is that it's quite small, but the leadership team are all extremely senior. So people like myself, who've been 20 plus years, you know, in the industry who have decided what I want to do is innovation. What I want to do is create a breakthrough and I want to bring with me all of these years of knowledge so we can get more done in a shorter amount of time because we're starting from a higher plateau of, of a knowledge base. So I do think, you know, that's the only way that I, you know what I mean? Again, I'm so, I hope this sparks a big debate, you know, of other ways that, that we can get there. But that is the way that I've found is we are under time constraints, you know, and particularly when you're dealing with, you know, technology, social media, all these things, it's like you really have to be able to do things quickly and also create new technology quickly. So you have to be in the mindset of the cat. And when the opportunity comes, you have to be able to sort of like sprint into, you know, into action. That's what we do at Barbarian is we have a mix of longer running, more retainered relationships, and then these sprints that we do. So having that mix is what allows us. You know, coming back to the question of time, I hope you will allow me to just say that I feel like time is going to become a big theme in society. And if everybody's talking about time doesn't exist quantum jumps, multiple timelines, you know what I mean? Like, and, you know, we started the conversation by talking about fast and slow. So I do think that there's something about where we are in, in this cultural moment and where we're evolving as a human species and our own understanding of ourselves and of the planet that we live on that is making us question our notions of time. It's an invention. We invented it. It's a form of measurement. And so if we invented it, we can reinvent it, we can recreate it, you know, or we can re-understand it. And time is really critical to so much of this. And I'm I'm glad that, you know, we did get a chance to bring it up. I am I am keeping an eye on our time <laughs> as as a as a matter I know, I know as a, I know. As a matter of fact. <laughs> but I, I don't want to leave that at that moment because I think time is is something that does need to be explored because and in a simple way, like I'll wonder, people will say like, oh, we we need to move fast. We have time constraints or there's time pressure. And I often come back to a very simple question, which is why, right? Like, I don't know, none of this. And, you know, I, I used to be in a very time sensitive business by the second almost. And partially why I left that business is because I realized that this shit wasn't really very important at all, right? Like it was, there was all this pressure based on time, but yet it didn't really matter beyond the, it being said that there was pressure, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious about what are we rushing to do? <laughs> and maybe that's a big kind of clumsy no, question, well, but no, I'm, it's I'm a great question. curious yeah. about it. Like what's, what's all the speed really amounting to? Cause yeah. I'm, I'm not well, really seeing it. So first of all, I feel like we are in for whatever reason in that, high end of the innovation curve of technology where we're just seeing more and more and more and more and more technology being created. So that's part, I think, of what's driving the speed is that things are changing and things are changing. And there's a feeling like we have to move as fast as things are changing, right? 
So that's one answer. I think another answer that I'd like to talk about is I've noticed that we're we're in what I would call an era of the great awakening. So people talk about the great resignation. In my mind, I think about it's more of a great awakening. We're making some big, you know, people are becoming aware. What is an awakening? It's like I'm becoming aware of different things, of different sort of values. And one of the things that I think we're becoming aware of is is that the measure of a life and the measure of a self is not in this constant hamster wheel of achievement. It's not gratifying. What matters more is how we feel. And I do think that this notion of the vibe and people caring more about how they feel and what it actually feels like to be there and what the experience is really like, as opposed to what it looks like or what I could say it was like, I think that that's a big kind of shift that's happening in society right now. And so I don't know how much longer we're going to be on this hurry, hurry, hurry thing, because in parallel to this hurry, 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 there's this other thing that's happening where people are like, this doesn't matter. (laughs) So um, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah, that I couldn't really agree with you more. And it sounds like we've just set it up for a sequel, right? We're going (laughs) to, we're going to, we're going to have to you know, leave it there before I get into the last two segments of the show. But I, I feel like we're going to release this and we're going to probably have a, a few other conversations and then we're going to have to come back and talk about this awakening, right? Oh, and, yeah. and and maybe spend more time just talking about time and its existence and and how it makes us all think and, and feel and, and relate to the world. So I'm going to put a pin in it there. Okay, and, good. Um, We're going to go to the final two segments of the show. The first one being off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. And I have three of them. All right. The first one is, if you had to caption your career at this moment, what would that caption look like? What would that caption be to kind of sum up where you are in your career at this moment? Wow. A caption as a, like a caption for a film, like a a headline or a a byline, a line. Oh, wow. Where I am for my career. Oh, gosh. Embracing the imaginal realm. Okay. I like it. I like it. Second question. What's something that you wish people would no longer assume about you? (gasps) Oh, my goodness. People would no longer assume about me. I don't know what people assume about me. I, I wish people would no longer assume that I am conservative. That's an interesting one. That sounds like that could be a whole. That sounds like that could be a whole new episode in and of itself. All right, that's an interesting one. And finally, I'm going to get us out off of off the dome with this one. If you could instantly acquire any new skill, what would that skill be? Instantly acquire anything. What would that skill be? Remote viewing. Is that a skill? Remote yes. viewing. Just explain. Yeah. Oh, so, and I'm, I'm actually taking a remote viewing class right now, so I can tell you about it. So basically okay, yeah. <laughs> it's, it is, it's actually from the military. It was a good military program and it teaches you how to literally detect and decode information from other timelines and other locations while it's not being there. Oh, okay. I've never heard of this term. Remote viewing. Look, everybody look it up. Okay. All right. <laughs> we have to throw that in the show notes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the final segment of the show is the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything with, with our listeners. It could be anything at all. I have my drop prepared. So I'm going to go first. Because I used to ask people, like, it's, it's I'm a weird space with this. Because for a long time when I offered the drop, I'd always say, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? everyone always said they wanted me to go first. So now I've just stopped asking. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to jump into it and give my drop. So I'm not trying to, I, I, people might've noticed this shift. I'm not trying to shortchange the the guess, but I've always noticed that no one ever took me up on going first. So I'm just like, fuck it. <laughs> I'll go first to kind of set the stage. Good. And my drop is sort of broad based this episode. It's the library. The The library was... In, in wherever you are in the world listening to this, I, I hope there's a library available to you. And the library was such a huge part of my life growing up. Uh, a healthy parents who encouraged me to read, encouraged 
my love and appreciation of the library because I didn't have a lot growing up. And the library was a place that just opened up the world to me. And it's one of these very basic common goods that I think most of us that are that are sane um, could agree that libraries are very useful. And even as an adult, I find them to be amazing reservoirs of not just information and not just books, but libraries in many spaces are active community spaces. They're spaces for those who might not have a lot to even just have a quiet place to rest, to use the bathroom, to read basic newspapers, to catch up on the world, to maybe watch something, to recharge their phones, to just just so much that happens within the space of a library that I feel we should be investing far more resources in them. So maybe this, maybe our, our current new mayor of New York will hear my words and spend more money on libraries rather than law enforcement. So that's my editorial. That's my drop. I'm ready for yours. Go. <laughs> well, I'm going to pick up what you put down and talk about parks. I, I grew up across the street from a park. I currently live across the street from a park. I love a good community park. I love the intergenerational happenings in a park where you have the old and the young and you have an opportunity to sort of sit and watch life pass you by and be a recipient of the experience of being in your community and being in nature. I am crazy about birds um, and a lot of birds in New York. So it's always, you know, just you know, very interesting to go have, go for a little walk in the park, sit in the park, listening to the sounds, all the sounds of people talking and children laughing and playing. And so I think parks are very important. We need more of them. There's also a park in my area called Forest Park, which was also designed by the same person who designed Central Park. And it's a little known over here in, in Queens, but it literally is like a forest. And the last thing that I'll say is we need parks and we need safety in parks because I would like to feel as a woman that I could safely walk through that those forest trails and not have to worry about whether or not I'm okay. So I hope our new mayor is listening to that too. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I 100% co-sign on the beauty of parks. And my I'm, I'm fortunate in, in Brooklyn that we have Prospect Park. And then right across the street from Prospect Park, it's Grand Army Plaza Library, the main library in Brooklyn. So I have both of those worlds right right next to one another. So that is an awesome drop. I'm, I'm glad we were very much in concert with that. And, you know, this has been wonderful. I, I can't really thank you enough for taking the time to, to join me on The Deep Dive. This has been an awesome conversation. It's been my pleasure anytime. And I, I, anytime and maybe next time we will talk about time <laughs> absolutely that we're gonna we've already set the stage for a sequel to this conversation so thanks again for being on the show with me thank you you can listen to the deep dive via apple podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com download subscribe listen and share if you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together then leave us a review We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.